Welcome to another episode of the Black Menaces Podcast. My name is Nate. I'm here with my co-host. Rachel Weaver. We are so excited to be back here on the podcast with you guys. Absolutely. We're going to jump into our menace moment real quick. So we're actually going to talk about um, a little girl and her mother um, who recently had an interesting incident. Um, so a little girl is named Bobby Wilson. She's nine years old. And last month, she was honored by the Yale School of Public Health because of some of the work that she is doing um, as a budding scientist, like a young little scientist. Um, And so they said, we wanted to show her bravery and how inspiring she is, and we just want to make sure she continues to feel honored and loved by the Yale community. Um, The reason that she did that is because, or the reason they honored her is because um, she made a collection of 27 spotted lanternflies, which is an invasive species that is harmful to trees and plants um, in that area. I think Yale is in Connecticut. Uh, but she like made a little, a little collection of those and, and submitted it to the university. But while she was collecting those lanternfly specimens, her neighbor, who is a white woman, uh, was, became afraid of her and called the police on her. So this is a nine-year-old girl, um, and this white woman called the police on her because she saw her in the neighborhood and... Um, I think that, you know, thought it was you know, something worth reporting. Um, so she called the the police department and she said, there's a little black woman walking, spraying stuff on the sidewalks and trees. Um, and then she's like, I don't know what the hell she's doing, but it scares me. And so then this is a little girl wearing like pink glasses and she was afraid of her walking outside just being a child. Um, police showed up um, and the little girl asked if she was in trouble. They said, no, you're not in trouble. And then she just kind of told him that she was, you know, trying to save trees by spraying these this invasive species. And then she was like putting them into a bottle. Um, but anyway, so her mother, her name is Monique Joseph. Um, she spoke out about it because, you know, obviously that's a terrifying experience for your little nine year old girl to, to yeah, be profiled. A, and, a and, child. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, uh, it just it never ceases to amaze me how um, just the, the mindset that you have to be in to call the to call the police on a nine-year-old child. And for her to say, like, there's a little black woman outside, like, spraying, it's just it's very like, weird, weird woman, thing to say. this is someone who hasn't even gone to puberty, man. I'm like, right. please. Like, looking, you know, looking at the picture, however, she's clearly a child. Like, this is the, let me see, I'll pull up the picture here. This is the little girl. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, it's definitely giving child. It's, <laughs> right. it's giving elementary school. Like, very it's much a like child. you're in elementary school. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so this little black woman was outside walking and it was worthy of the police. Um, but when this when this happened, when it kind of became public. Oh, you know what? I apologize. I apologize. I, I said it was a white woman. It was actually a white man named Gordon Losh. Oh, well, that okay. makes it worse. Yeah. So it was not a white honest. woman. It was a white man. <laughs> that is my mistake. Um, I, I misread that. But yeah. So uh, this man named Gordon Losh. Um, did this and so the, her her sister and mother spoke out about the incident and once they did yale scientists and scholars reached out and rallied around little bobby and honored her at yale um in that that office and so wanted to highlight her this week for her bravery and for her efforts in saving the trees in the area that she lives in but that is the minutes moment for this week but yeah that's that's kind of crazy though that's wild so yeah for for a white person it's, it's even worse that it's a white man because it's like they have even less to be afraid of you know what i mean Right. Um, to call the to call the police on a little child like that. Mm. Absolutely absurd. Um, but yeah, uh, really quickly, we want to introduce our guest today. And then if you have anything that you wanted to say about that story, you're more than welcome to. But we wanted to introduce Liz Pryor um, or Elizabeth Pryor. She's a professor at Smith University, and she can tell you a little bit more about some of her accomplishments 
and the things that she's doing. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the Black Menaces and it's an honor to be here. Um, I am an associate professor of history at Smith College and um, I teach courses on slavery and race. And um, we were lucky enough to have you all, the Black Menaces, come visit us, I think, in November and um, got the feedback that it was like the event of the of the year. Um, and some of my colleagues said it was actually the best event in, um, that they'd been to in a really, really long time. And a lot of it had to do with just the way in which you generate um, you know, hope for the students and your activism is so relatable to the to to other students who are fighting the same kind of issues at other PWIs. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Super excited to have you on the podcast. Um, Liz is amazing. She reached out to us way back when, like when we first went viral, I want to say it was like March or April that you had reached out to us and um, started talking to us about essentially coming out to visit Smith College. And so when it finally came into fruition, we were able to get out there. It was a great experience. We had so much fun and uh, it was great meeting Liz and then also meeting students and, and getting mm-hmm. to sit in on classes and things like that. It was a different experience because um, none of us had ever been to another college for any extended period of time, you know, except for BYU. So it was a great learning experience for us too. Yeah, it was really, I still look back and I'm like, that was so, it was just, it was really cool to talk with the students and understand their experience and get to know an experience that's so different than ours. Um, but similar at the same time, right? There's similarities between black students at all PWIs, but understanding some of those nuances that exist at a more liberal place, a smaller school as well. Um, and the students were just amazing. They were all so cool. And um, it was also very, I don't know what the word, validating almost to see like people that cared about what we did like we we felt like almost imposter syndrome being there too a little bit like Mm -hmm. I know we were all like dang okay like we were like wow we didn't realize this many people would even show up to this kind of event and um it was just cool to know that like this is the power of what these things can do is like it, it helped those students to feel empowered you could tell through us visiting and us talking with them they felt validated and helped them to feel like more confident as they go out to try to change smith and improve their school and and that was that's what we want right and we don't really get that feedback through the internet you don't get that until you're there in person so going there really helped us to see like what we have wanted has come out and it's not even like our own personal stuff but the students connected more we were able to connect with them and that that was just really cool to witness yeah so so liz with that um with you being a professor of history and teaching race and slavery um at the at the university you go to smith smith college is an all-girls college or an all-women's college. Um, it, it's, a histor- it's historically a women's college, which means that college. now there are, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So historically yeah. a women's yeah. college. Um, yeah. What has your experience been like teaching about uh, slavery and race and, and issues like that amongst um, that particular audience? I know that you have a lot of white students, but also it can be pretty diverse in terms of intersections. So what has your experience been like and you know, what, what things have you seen? Well... I feel really, really lucky um, teaching at Smith because the students are super engaged and especially like this semester when I have, um, I think because of the Black Menaces event, more Black students, uh, you know, decided to take my classes. And um, because of that, I've got some 
you know, uh, activists, black students who are more vocal, which which helps the classroom environment a lot for sure. But even when even when I don't have as many black students, it's just a real pleasure to teach this because there's so, there are students who just are learning about. It's it's always fascinating to me how students are learning for the first time things like that there was slavery in Massachusetts, which is where Smith College is. Mm-hmm. You know, like l- learning that you know that you know there was slavery in the North. That um, you know race is constructed. That it's something that's built through you know historical actions and laws, and it's not something that always existed or that exists biologically. So. Um, I've had a wonderful experience teaching here um, um, for for years, but I particularly am gratified when when black students take the class and you know kind of help to elevate the discussion because they do ha- because many of my black students have thought about the issues very deeply before. Um, some of my white students have, but maybe not at the same level. You know, not had as many discussions. So yeah, it's a great place. Yeah, um, I think one of the one of the kinds of issues that sometimes comes up is the dynamic in the classroom. Like, you know, having to, learning how to encourage people to ask questions without asking harmful questions, but then also not wanting to silence students. And so those kind of dynamics do come up in the courses that I teach. But I try to be really careful about. Um, the way in which I frame the fraught subjects that I teach. Okay, that makes sense. Have you ever had an issue with students um, not really accepting the things that you teach or or being, um, or just having like trouble wrapping their head around certain things? And if so, how did you, how did you handle that? You know, that's, it, and we talked about this when you were on campus, but that's mm-hmm. not really as much of a Smith issue. So I don't have students in my class saying things like racism racism would be over if black people just stopped talking about it (laughs) you know like i don't i don't have those kinds of conversations but what i think is more um likely to happen is that my students get so caught up in wanting to say the right thing especially the white students, mm-hmm. that they don't actually ask the deeper questions that they have, that they don't want to take the risk of, um, and, and I kind of understand why, because it's complicated, but, but they don't take the risk of asking the kinds of questions that might get backlash or that might, might leak out to people that they're not as sophisticated in their thinking about race as they want people to believe that they are. Mm. So that is more of the problem. So in some ways, getting those confrontational discussions that you might have in your classroom, as exhausting as it might be, Mm. um, might at least open up the possibility for a little bit more honest conversation. So that's something that I try to cultivate is people actually being real and not being so caught up in saying the right thing. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, the reason that I asked that question is because, um, you know, at BYU, I think most of us have been in, in, in situations where there was a student in class who had something contrary to say or who had trouble accepting a particular subject or topic. Um, I remember one time there was a guy that we tried to talk to about feminism and um 
empowering women and he just couldn't wrap his head around the fact that women needed to be empowered separately from men so he was like oh well we need to help men and women right i was like no 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 men are already empowered we need to just help women he's like yeah but men too and i'm like no 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 you're not you're missing the point um mm-hmm. so it's interesting to hear that um, mm. for sure mm. that's so interesting like the, the idea if you were talking about women specifically and talking about feminism as applying to women felt somehow threatening mm-hmm. to like the greater good like yeah. this person believed that that if you're not saying it's kind of like all lives matter right it's yeah. like if you're if you're not acknowledging all people equally at the same time then it's not equitable right. like mm-hmm. yeah so, so if you my, don't mind me ask oh sorry go ahead i was just gonna say my freshman year i had somebody say they might as well be racist because people think they're going to be racist anyway. Somebody said that in <laughs> class in front of a professor. Like, that's the kind of stuff. <laughs> Interesting. It's like, oh, but, no, but see, no, ma'am. <laughs> so, but that's so interesting to me because that means that somebody thinks that racism is only when you call me the N-word. Mm. Right. So like that. So the interpretation right. of what racism is, it's like, I might as well be racist. Well, you already Bead races. Yeah. You, know, like, you, you it's it's in process. The fact that you even just said that out loud was was racist, right? Right. But um, but they're thinking that racist only means these like the verbal assaults, physical assaults, um, you know, like you sit at the back of the bus, as opposed to somebody coming up to me and saying, How much financial aid do you get? which is a question that I got all the time mm. when I was in college. And it just so happens, my father was Richard Pryor, who is this com- comedian. Wait a second. Who, what? I did not, you knew that. I did not know that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, let them know who you are. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. I didn't realize we were in the presence of, of royalty. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But, you know, like, and my father paid for college, right? But but when I was in college in the 80s, everybody wanted to know how much financial aid I got. Um, what I got on the SATs was a very common question, right? Mm-hmm. Like, did I, did I, because they were so worried about affirmative action and whether or not I belonged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, I had bad SAT scores. But, 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 <laughs> but. but <laughs> But but I could write very, very well. Right. That's and, and mm-hmm. you know, and maybe you know, and maybe they couldn't. I had these other things. I had great letters of recommendation, but they all wanted to know my credentials. Mm-hmm. They always wanted to test my credentials. And they don't that that deserve to be there. Prove that I deserve to be there. Now that's not this that that's not racism, that's just inquiry, mm-hmm. right? Racism is only when you call me the N-word. Right. So that's yeah. that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And, you know, kind of going along with the, the, the idea of checking credentials, that's a, a conversation that we have in Utah frequently. You know, pretty much every time you go into a predominantly white space, if somebody comes to talk to you, the only things that they want to know about you are where you're from, what you're doing, you know, in Utah, whether you're working or going to school. Um, and then, you know, if you're working or if you're going to school, what you're studying or what you like, what where you work. And then based off of those three questions, they kind of make assumptions about you and i've heard those questions so many times that i just get tired of answering it 
Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, it, it's like, you know, if I go into a space like this, I don't want to have the same conversation 10 different times. I would love to get to know somebody on a different level or do something that where I'm not having to prove my credentials or prove why I'm in this space in the first place, you know? So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting to think about. Um, I wanted to, before we go any further, because it has to do with the rest of the things that we're going to talk about, but Liz, would you uh, just kind of share some of your intersections with us, some of the different identities that you have? Absolutely. Um, and I did this this semester for the first time teaching because um, I, I'm thinking for reasons that I don't want to really go into, but I'm thinking in really deep ways right now about who as who I am as a scholar, who I bring to the work, right? So mm-hmm. that's going to inform the kind of questions I ask of the material I study. So I am, I identify as Black. Um, I am biracial. My mother was Jewish and white. My father was African-American. Um, I am, I am in a, you know, heteros- hetero heterosexual marriage, um, but I identify on the queer spectrum, um, and I am uh, identify as a woman. I'm a cis woman, and what else about me? Um, I went to mostly white schools all my life. Um, my husband is white, which I think is important because it kind of it speaks to the kinds of choices that I made throughout. I love my husband. He's the best, but like the kind of choices that I've made um, throughout my life in terms of my identity, the kind of places I've chosen, you know, I've chosen to land. Um, I've been more, um, you know, fearful of choosing black spaces than I have been about choosing white spaces, even though I've had a lot of pain in those white spaces that I, that I've chosen. Um, I, uh, my mother was Jewish and we weren't super, my mother was from a working class family. Her father drove a taxi cab and her mother worked at a department store in Boston called Feline's and um, in the lingerie department. So they were very working class people. And so was my father's family too, although they worked in an underground economy in, in Illinois, but, um, but um, they were not practicing Jews. They they weren't re- religious. Mm. Let me say say it that way. But there, you know, we had these religious practices. But I feel of myself, and always have, and so did my mother, and so did her her family. That we are um, very much um, culturally Jewish. Mm-hmm. So I identify very much with being, you know, culturally Jewish, even though I don't go to shul and I don't. Um, you know, I don't, well, sometimes I, you know, sometimes I celebrate the holidays and sometimes one of my cousins will bring, you know, as their dish, like pork string beans to a, you know, to a Seder when pork is not kosher and not what, you know, practice and juicy, but that's the way we do Jewish in my family. Okay. okay. I've heard this before um, from people who like are maybe not religiously Jewish, but culturally Jewish because I'm from Chicago and there's a lot of Jewish people there. So, <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to ask, um, you know, with with identifying as culturally Jewish um, and then also being a black woman right now, there's kind of this this movement um, within certain areas of the black community where there's this idea that um, black people are the real Jews. Right. That's kind of like the the sentiment that's passed on. um, And there's kind of like a, a growing movement towards that, you know, in that direction. Um, so with you. 
um, kind of being in the the middle of those intersections, uh, what are your, I guess, what have been your feelings as you've kind of seen an increase in anti-Semitism among the black community? Um, and, and what, I guess, would be some of your responses to that? Well, I hadn't heard about black people as as the you know real original Jews, but um, and I'd love to hear more about that. Um, the 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 Jewish world that I've occupied has been Ashkenazi, which is essentially European Jews, mm. and um, and you know what I've been familiar with. But you know, I am concerned about like I mean, you know, I you know thinking about somebody like Kanye West and the recent remarks and or not so recent remarks that he made that um about jews and about there being some kind of like cabal of jews who you know are going to you know turn against him and build against him and always have been i mean i i have real concerns about that kind of talk and language about any kind of people, because to me, it's the same kind of ways in which um, folks have talked about black people, you know, like to mm -hmm. talk about, to not understand that, you know, just because you're part of a cultural practice or some kind of community, like you, you're not a human being with individual traits and individual desires. And there are probably some, uh, you know, you know, Jews who, you know, do things that people won't like. And there are also going to be Jews that are great. And it has nothing to do with the fact that they're Jewish. <laughs> they're just human being people like black people. But it seems like somehow the same same way with, you know, to me with black people, it's like you, um, you do something and then it's like black people do this. You know, um, I, I've been seeing a lot of stuff like you don't see people saying, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse gives a bad name to white people, you know, like to white people or, you know, Trump gives a bad name to white people. But you do see, um, you know, people, uh, I, I, the the most recent thing I've seen is like a, a college football player who murdered a, um, a girl or something. And then you see, you know, the comments are all about black, you know, this is, you know, black people or black violence or um, even even in the Tyree Nichols um, mm. horrible mm. horrible situation, but the way in which that violence was talked about as as opposed to being part of systemic violence that happens when you have a militant police force, it being somehow the, this particular level of violence being attributed to black folks in particular, and and not really seeing the larger systemic story there in that. Um, in that instance. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but. Yeah, it, it does. It does. And so I guess I, I, if I can kind of paraphrase what you're saying or sum it all up, um, basically the ways in which, uh, you know, we talk about each other are the things that, that are kind of concerning, right? Because, you know, as black people and as Jewish people, um, both groups have been marginalized in some in similar ways and some in different ways. And so to hear any kind of, um, like hate speech going back and forth between either is, is kind of a problem. Is that like a, a good way of saying? It is. I mean, it is, but you know, there's, there's this real, I mean, I think on both sides, there's a very deeply historic reason why those conversations are having happen in the way that they do. The reason why there's um, a, a kind of a, 
black anti-Semitism and why there's Jewish anti-blackness, uh, both, um, I mean, there are these books that I, I can't remember the exact title, but there's there's a book called something like When the Jews Became White, When the Irish Became White, When the Italians mm-hmm. Became White, mm-hmm. because people who are immigrants to the, to the United States um, who weren't thought of as white realized that if they define themselves in their communities against black people, mm-hmm. they would gain, they would gain entry into the body politics. And so part of becoming white, part of becoming American is becoming white in um, opposition to black mm-hmm. people. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, so that, so there's a reason that those kinds of, um, you know, kind of imaginings by black people about Jews exist is because that work actually is real and has happened. I I know like my mother came from a town in Massachusetts called Dorchester, right in Boston. And in the sixties, like many cities around the country, um, folks, including Jewish people who own property in those towns, um, they fled those towns for fear that black people were encroaching into those communities and they burned they some some people burned it to get the insurance because they thought they'd get more money on the insurance mm-hmm. rather than getting getting um what do you call it um you know selling the properties because um, yeah. they, they didn't think they could sell so there so there's real reason you know like there there's some roots to why that happened um and um, why why black people are disru- distrustful, distrusting of of some Jewish people, and why Jewish people um, position themselves against black people? Although there's also been a lot of coalitions, um, a lot of activism in the '60s, um, civil rights activism connected between Jewish people and black people together. So it's it's really, I mean, I think there's just a, a long history there that um, that is is worth kind of exposing, but I, yes, exactly. As you said, you, you got it right. But, and I made it more confusing, but yes. <laughs> I'm interested to, to know a little bit more about your experiences, even being, you know, culturally Jewish and your experiences from your mom's side of her family and then your dad's side of his family and like your experience with your own blackness and how maybe those two have influenced one another, how you show up in the other space, just because they are, um, they're, they are so different, right? And like my my knowledge and my like biases up to this point, like growing up, I'm like, oh, Jewish spaces are very white. Like that's always what I thought growing up. That's what I knew. And I was, and I'm like, oh, those are spaces for me. Like my friends are cool and we talk, but like, it's only like if you're welcome to like a bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah type thing. That's about it, you know. And um, so I'm just interested to know like how that was for you as someone who you know you have a you that is a part of who you are in your experience and how that was and how that impacted like you showing up in black spaces as well. I mean, I, it's been it it's funny because. Well, for me, um, there, I've I've found a lot of black people have been dismissive about my Jewishness, mm. um, and kind of poo-pooed it. Mm. That's something that, you know, like it's not a real religion or something, <laughs> or wow. or it, like like so that. But but even more so, I I have often 
profoundly felt my blackness in Jewish spaces mm. and profoundly felt my difference. I, I, not with my family. I have to say, I mean, it, take this with a grain of salt. Yes. With my family to a certain extent, like um, my mother was a white woman who she, she kind of created her own racial category, which was, she was a black woman raising, a, she was a white woman raising a black child. That was my mother had this, like, is she actually kind of imagine this as its own racial category when she was raising me, which allowed her to say things to me that like people should just not say to black people. White people should never say these things. And my mother said them to me. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that was, you know, you know, that existed a little bit. And, but even as, you know, sometimes I'd been afraid to talk, hear my cousin's politics or, um, you know, have those kinds of conversations with them about race. I've, I, my, my mother's family, my white cousins who, who I'm, I'm an only child with my mother. Um, and I have six brothers and sisters on my father's side. And, um, but with my mother's family, I've always felt very, uh, very accepted and very loved by my, my, you know, those are like my cousins. Those are the ones who know my kids and, um, and, um, you know, my cousins feel on, you know, auntie ish about them. And I grew up with those cousins. Mm-hmm. And so um, that hasn't really been as much where it's shown in the family, but it has like, when I went first went to Hebrew school, you know, the kids told me that I wasn't really Jewish, mm. you know, and a lot, and this is cl- classic. This is a classic experience that I have with white Jews. Classic. I say that I'm Jewish and they go, oh, you're Jewish. And then they, and then they say, is your mother Jewish? Because Judaism mm. is a matrilineal religion and you are yes. the religion of your mother. So they yes. want to know. It's right. like, again, again, to that credentials conversation, mm. but like, like, I'm like, are you asking other people if their mother is Jewish? Right, right. right. Like, they could or, be, shoot, I don't know. They could be, they could be from Russia. I don't know. And they're just, <laughs> right. Right. right exactly. You know? Exactly. And they just, there's this thing again. It's like, prove to me, prove to me that you belong in this space. You need to prove to me that you belong in this space. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I've faced a lot. I also have heard, you know, very commonly, I'm sure this is probably something you've heard at BYU, maybe not, but uh, the kind of anomaly argument you know oh you're not like other people you're not really black you're mm. you know those kind of those kinds of do you guys ever hear that or is yeah. that something it's more so like it's they like tokenize you mm-hmm. while also like simultaneously elevating you at the same time and like i don't know nate your thoughts on this it's like well you're not like other like you're not the black people i have problems with or like you're just such a better you're a more, it's like, almost like they're telling me you're a digestible black person. That's mm-hmm. how I take it. Yeah. Like you're enough black that you're different than me, that you're teaching me and I'm learning. I can say I have a black person mm-hmm. that's in my life, but also like not enough that I'm actually challenging anything in their life where they really feel uncomfortable. Because if I, if, if I, if I felt that way to them, they wouldn't want to be around me as much as they do, if that makes sense. That's how I always take it when those kind of, that sentiment is said to me around like LDS people, 
especially. And like, it makes me mad because like, I know how to navigate the LDS space very well. I know how to make it, I know what to say to make these people feel like, wow. And it makes me mad that I know that because I know that's how I'm going to be received, even if they don't acknowledge it themselves that that's what they're feeling. Yeah, I mean, I love the word, di- I love the word digestible. I always use the word palatable, mm-hmm. but yeah. I think it's, re- I think it's really interesting that they all have to do with eating. Yeah. Like I- they all have to do <laughs> like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like they, they, these are things like, it's like, I have to make myself tasty. Mm. Like I have to make myself, I, I don't, I, there's something, yes, there's something here. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so deep. That probably goes in with why. White people always call black people like chocolate or caramel or mocha yeah. and all those words too. <laughs> but, um, mm. I, and I, you know, I, when I was younger, I definitely got called an Oreo. I don't know if you've ever been called that, but white on the inside, black on the outside, like that was very much a, uh, a word that, that was used around me a few times, you know, at school, um, things like that. But yeah, it kind of goes along with the same thing of being easily digestible or what have you. Um, you had mentioned... Liz, you had mentioned that um, you've spent a lot of time in white spaces um, and that you've experienced a lot of pain in those spaces. Um, and then, you know, talking a little bit about like your upbringing and things like that. I guess I have a question. Uh, what um, what what do you think led you to like navigate more in those white spaces um, and then to kind of like stay away from black spaces? Um, would you say that that had something to do with like your upbringing or just like um, internalized racism, things like that. Cause I know we've all gone through like different stages of racial development. And so I'm curious about yours. Well, I mean, when I, got, I mean, it's a great question, but when I got to college, I think is when I sort of had this racial, I, it is exactly when I had this racial awakening where I kind of realized I always knew I was black. I never thought I was white. I never thought anything like that, but mm-hmm. it's when I got to college, I was like, Oh shoot, this means something. Mm. This is this is this is important piece of who I am, which is not what I knew and thought before. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think. It's really funny because like. Even the words that I like when I was in high school felt so much more comfortable saying like gnarly or awesome or totally than Mm. I would like like I could never like forget about saying the n-word among people because that wasn't even really a thing quite that people were doing when I was that the black people that I knew weren't quite doing that in that way not like today but like things like fine like saying like you know or or saying that brother that sister, I, I just, it, it just sounded weird coming out of my, to me, mm-hmm. but for some mm-hmm. reason saying gnarly didn't sound weird coming out of my mouth to me. There was like, it was like, I felt like almost I could pass more easily in these whites, not as white, but to, to pass is like where I'm from California as, as a Valley girl more easily than I could if it, it, like, I felt like black people would call me out. Like they would be able to know right away. Mm. You're, you're fake. You're phony. Yeah. Like you're, Mm -hmm. yeah. You're posing. Yeah. And I don't know where I got that. I don't know how that developed. I'm thinking about it a lot lately as I think more deeply about my biracial identity, but I know it's true. It's a thing that happened. Okay. That's really interesting. We were, we interviewed someone a couple of weeks ago 
Um, and she talked about how she went, you know, she walked past a black student union meeting and she saw everybody in there and she's biracial. And she said that she saw everybody in there and she felt like, oh, I don't fit in with this particular group of people or like, I don't see myself there. And so she walked past it and she said that like, you know, she later came to regret that and wish that she had gone in um, because now she realizes that, you know, blackness is not something that's, that's uniform, right? Everybody is different. We all come from, you know, different, different places. Um, but it's interesting to, to hear to hear your your side of the things because it, it's it's almost similar in a way where it's like you felt um, like more comfortable um, being black in one space than in another space is that like a good way to say that? I mean it's it, yes and I, I I agree with this other person like I think I thought that there was like a singular way of being black and that I was not that singular way. And it wasn't until I started meeting more and more and more black people that I started realizing, like, there's no singular way of being black. Like, people are just people. And black is like this becomes like it's kind of a, like a loose affiliation that becomes a strong affiliation because of racism. But it's it, and, and, and community. But like really like just they're just a bunch of people some people like this kind of music some people like that kind of music and i just think i don't know this was my internalized racism was that i believed i had to be one way and i didn't think i was that way and therefore i didn't think i was going to fit in and i felt like and i and my belief from the tv shows i watched the books i read the teachers i had the you know the whatever i believed that white people could be a variety of things mm -hmm. and so that felt like a easier fit for me even though i went through a lot of pain in those situations i mean i have to say my my dearest closest friends who are like family to me are white women that i've known since i was 12 and 13 and mm, i'm still right. friends with them and i love and i love them dearly and i wouldn't trade them but there's been but but there's been a lot of pain in those communities that i that i not in the same way have felt from, but i felt pain from black people too like that that like i was talking to a girlfriend the other day who's got two black parents and she said to me something i was telling her about um facing racism she's like oh you face racism and i was like no honey mm. yeah of course i think like what are you yeah. saying but this was something that sometimes mm -hmm. people who aren't biracial say to people who are yes like are you kidding mm -hmm. yeah absolutely something that i thought like while you were talking i think it's interesting like some of the points you brought up about just like not knowing where these things come from and just like association of like what happens and what doesn't um because i feel like i felt that way in elementary school a lot of the times which is really weird because i am i have two black parents i have a ton of black family that i was around but i feel like i was around um a very niche type of black person i was in inner city chicago so a very specific experience of black people was my reality and that was not kind of what my home life was like if that makes sense like the way my mom raised us and the way that we I actually went to like this is super random before my parents like separated I went to like Jewish camp I don't know if you know what the JCC is but I went to the JCC when I was younger <laughs> anywho I'm using this as an example <laughs> like those were the spaces I was in sometimes as a child um so when I went to like this elementary school full of a lot like people from a different really SES background than myself um it was a very different experience for me. And I felt that way. And I had two black parents and I was like, I feel like there's a specific black experience that they want from me that I'm clearly not delivering. 
And I was like, and I was ostracized for that by people. And I was also, I liked school and that wasn't cool for anybody, right? That's, you know, but, but added a racial element on that, like, Nate, like I was told that I talked white or I liked white people thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't even know what I like. I just like to do well in school. Like that, how, how do I like? And so it's just interesting, like what is, what is associated as like blackness and how we internalize that through like our experiences. And um, sometimes it feels like your experience validate that though, almost of like what you have internalized, because like you said, a black person like your your friends said that something like that, right? And it's it's just really weird, and it doesn't make. I think all experiences are valid and true, but um, it's just interesting that nuances don't necessarily exist when you're having those moments as children, um, because our brains don't don't know all that, and they don't experience that, and other kids don't even know that too, with the way they're interacting with you, um, which is why it's important to have these conversations. So like, the next generation doesn't repeat the cycle type thing. Like this is stuff me and my siblings talk about, and other black people talk about, so that it's. I, I don't want that for the next generation of black people, biracial people, anybody like this is something we need to move past as a group, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, 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 you know, I grew up and there was not a conversation about biracial identity. So true. You had you had a name. It mm-hmm. was mixed. Right. People called you mixed, but it, 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 mixed just was more like a designation. It wasn't an identity. Right. You were either black or maybe you tried to pass as white, but those were like the two ways. Yep. And like, as I've started in my adulthood, talking to more women um, in particular who are biracial women who are, you know, born in the sixties and earlier like myself, you know, or the early seventies, I start to, to realize like this actually was an identity even though we didn't ever vocalize it out loud, mm-hmm. this 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 was a real identity to us. And like blackness, it's not a singular identity either. Mm-hmm. So I haven't yet met another biracial person. Like they can nod their heads and and go uh huh, but then they'll be like, oh, but you only went to white schools. Oh no no no, I don't. You know, it, it, there's always right. like a little bit of nuance mm-hmm. to each of our stories. Like you know. Um, you know, I, you know, one friend who's biracial and with a white Jewish mother, and she only wanted to ever date black men mm. because that was her way of feeling like she belonged. And I wanted to the only like the only time well, I've dated plenty of black. The, the main black guy when I was in high school I wanted to date was because all the white girls wanted him. You know, so it's like, so there's like this constant, I'm I'm like, right, yeah. I mean, there's like this constant, I'm like, thinking constantly about how do, how am I going to fit in? How am I going to fit in? What, what steps am I going to take to fit in? And never quite getting it right and finding out other people are doing the same and coming up with totally different math problems than Mm. the one I did. Yeah. So like developing identity is is a difficult and like a long a long term process. Like it takes a lot of time to to really come into like I'm still developing my identity and you're still developing yours and I'm sure Rachel's still developing hers, you know. Um and and with that, I guess, you know, moving away from you developing your ID your um your identity as a biracial person, what was it like finding and identifying your your or finding your identity as a queer person? 
Um, did that come like before you were married? Did that come after you were married? What has that process been like? That is like, I'm a, I'm a baby. And um, that's something I probably had thought about before I was married and had a few experiences, but never thought about it as part of my identity. Thought about it as like a little, like, you know, undercover brother kind of thing. Like, mm. you know, like something like that I was never going to tell anybody about. Mm. And then, you know, my husband, you know, as you know, my husband and I are super, super close. He's my best friend for sure. And, um, you know, as I started, he was so accepting of it. He didn't feel, you know, threatened by it at all. And he was just really accepting of me. And when I, when I started at Smith, I think it was when I started being able to say more of it out loud because um, the Smith students, there are a lot of queer students at Smith um, and, you know, who occupy a lot of different gender identities and sexual identities and claim them. And it gave, it gave me some peace to, to be able to start thinking about the way in which I occupy that space. But I certainly have never been an activist around it. You know, this is probably the first time I've ever said it publicly and, um, and am, am, am kind of trying to navigate what that means since I'm, you know, married to a guy and, you know, you know, hopefully, you know, will be till the end of my days because I don't, I, I love him, you know, so, so, um, but, but it does, it does like curve or, or shape my worldview, I do think in ways that I haven't yet explored and still haven't. So I don't really have an answer, but. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for that, for, for being vulnerable and for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, with, with you being in the education field um, and kind of like what led you into the education field and what has your experience been like? Um, did you ever teach anywhere else before you came to Smith College? And then what has your experience been like teaching at a historically women's college? Um, so I was a terrible student when I was in college. And I never, ever, 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 ever wanted to take a class again as long as I lived. <laughs> that's how I feel. So that's yep, why I'm laughing. I understand that sentiment. <laughs> And then I sort of had an about face in my early 20s. And I, um, you know, I, like I said, in college, I discovered my Black identity and I just wanted to learn more about it. Like, I didn't even really think about it as being an academic, but I, I kind of wanted to write screenplays about Black people and myself and maybe write poetry, which I had done in college as well. And so... I went to Cornell University to study, um, to get my master's in Africana studies, simply because I wanted to like beef up my, my, my ability to write screenplays. That's what I was thinking about. Mm. And then when I got there, I just, I, I was like, I, as much as I love literature, and I really, really, really do, I love history so much. Like I started learning about I never studied slavery, I don't think ever. And when I got into those courses and started learning about slavery, I was like, what? It just like spoke to my heart in this way. Mm. I, I, it just, you know, if you want to talk about really trying to get at the fact that the humanity of every 
human walking the planet, like getting into the heads of people who suffered through this, this atrocity and still managed to shape community and fall in love and, mm. um, and find freedom and fight for themselves and teach themselves how to read, even though it meant it could mean that you were going to kill like these kind, this kind of resilience. I don't know. It just cracked my brain open and I just, I wanted more. And that's how I got into the study of it. It just like, it just sang to me. Oh, and then, so I taught at, I taught one course, which actually was amazing at Pasadena, Pasadena city college in California. Mm-hmm. I taught a women's history course there that I like uh, as an adjunct person, it was like, it, and that I think that experience, even though I was terrified of doing it, that's what made me want to teach because people they these were working women. These weren't like college students. They were people. At, it was a night course. There were people who had regular jobs and were really some of them were going through college, but some of them just want to take women's studies because they want to take women's studies. And it 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 felt like connecting with people who were so hungry to learn in the way that I had once been and and was still that got me excited and i just fell in love with that group of women in that class and i think it was all women um uh in that class and it made me realize like i i could be a teacher i love teaching and that's sort of what mm-hmm. how it unfolded i love that yeah absolutely yeah academia i love that you were like yes this is where i want to go because after taking sociology, I'm like, Mm-mm, academia is not for me. I was like, this, these are not my people. Um, <laughs> I was like, I love the work. I love reading it. Do I want to contribute? Absolutely not. Um, research is not for me, but I love what y'all do. I will support what y'all do and I will read the things that y'all write. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that's that's about all we got. Rachel, do you have anything mm-hmm. else? No, I mean, is there anything else that you want to share about your experience that we didn't cover or anything you want to touch on or just like leave with the people? Anything you want your students to hear? Yeah. I love you, my students. Um, I love Smith students. Come to Smith College. Um, well, I have written an essay on the N-word. Um, and I maybe want to talk just a little about it for one second, just yeah, to say, absolutely. um, well, I have a book too called colored travelers, which really talks a lot about, um, kind of like the origins in the United States of, you know, traveling while black walking while black and, um, how, you know, the vehicles of public transportation become like the sites of not only like, you know, the early segregation, but also uh, early sites of resistance in the 19th century. But um, um, because I'm always interested in resistance, because it's a huge part of the story of Black history, which is how Black people fought back. Um, but um, I also wrote at the beginning of that book and, and an article about the history of the N-word and really studies what I think is fascinating, um, it kind of studies the Black use of the word and the historical Black use of the word, and that folks like my father in the 1970s were not the first people to use the N-word in this way of community, of hailing community and in-group usage, the Black usage. But that had been around 
since like at least the 1770s and 1780s. And to think that black people have used language in this particular way to, um, you know, as a political tool, as a tool of protest and um, that feels really important to me. So if you're interested in it, look up Elizabeth Storter Pryor and it's called the etymology and then it's the actual N-word, which I wouldn't do today, but whatever. Etymology of N-word, I think something like freedom, race, and language in the uh, before the Civil War, the Antebellum North or something. You know what's crazy is I think I actually read that like three years ago. Because that oh, sounds what? very familiar. Yeah, yeah it does. Because <laughs> I did, I made a video called <laughs> Why Can't White People Say the N-Word? And I definitely used an article called The Etymology of the N-Word. And so I think it was that one. I'll have to go back and look and see. But I think that's crazy because you said that. And I was like, wait, hold on. Something's clicking right now. So that's pretty amazing. I know you you put it in the uh, the signature of your email as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we'll probably post that, that um, with your with your little bio in um, in the description so people can read it if they'd like to. But thank you so I'd much for that. sharing that. I love that. That's pretty Thank amazing. you so much. It's it's such a pleasure to know you both and all of the Black Menaces and, um, you know, to stay in contact and to be in conversation. So thank you very much. For sure. For sure. Well, well we got recommendations now. Liz, if you I, want, your recommendation can be your article or it can be something else. Um, but we'll give you a second. Uh, to, uh, let's. Let's leave it right. Oh, I just read a great book um, with my students. Um, it's 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 old now, a couple of years old, but it's called Never Caught. Hold on. It's called Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Owner Judge by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. It's about um, George Washington's slave and how they tried to catch this woman named Ona Judge, but it's written kind of like a novel. It's beautifully written. And even if you find history hard to digest, it's a great one. So I recommend that. Just read it again. It's fabulous. Okay. Sounds good. Rachel, do you want to go next? You want me to go? Yes, I can go next. All okay. Right, my sure. recommendation, I just listened to this earlier today. So this is like super pop culture. Um, Lizzo just won a Grammy. Mm -hmm. If you guys didn't know or hear about this, it was awesome. And I didn't watch the Grammys because I don't watch awards shows live. So I'm not that person. They're but, not that interesting. Um, yeah. But I watched her speech on her Instagram. She posted it. And it was so beautiful. Like, I cried listening to her speech. Hmm. And it just felt like it felt so genuine and authentic about her sharing about why she wanted to make music. And then she gave, like, a little tribute to Beyonce. And just realizing, like, Listening to it has made me realize that like, we're in such, although there's all this, these terrible things happening in the world and so much racism and all these things, there's so many people do, in, in the Black community specifically who are trying to use their voice for good and to bring happiness to people and to inspire them. Like, I just think it's crazy. Like Lizzo is an artist who's winning a Grammy who was inspired by, you know, Beyonce, who is now the most, who has won the most Academy. Like she's won the most Grammys in the history mm -hmm. of 32, Grammys. Baby. 32. Wow. So, you know, it's it, having that moment and just being like, wow, I'm living amongst all of these great people who are using their blackness to, to propel them forward and um, add to the culture as well. And, and seeing how influential black women are in pop culture and the music industry, it was just very powerful. And it made me 
excited and proud of Lizzo and proud that, you know, she's making songs that are just making people feel good and making people feel confident. And she's not talking about black struggles. She's not talking about these things. Like she's just happy music that makes people want to dance. And um, I love that. And it's by a black woman. So I'm always going to elevate that. And so very moving though, if you want a little tear moment for today. Okay. There you go. <laughs> cool. Cool. My recommendation also pop culture, but a little bit different. So uh, a friend of mine recently put me on to Little Yachty's new album, which normally I never oh. would have listened to, but it's actually, it's very um, different from, from some of the stuff that he's put out before. And it's like got a yeah. funk vibe to it. So it, it when I put it on, it, it reminded me of like Pink Floyd or like Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. like old school classic rock with like a mixture of funk in there. Yeah. A very unique sound, but it's called, it's called Let's Start Here. Um, so if you get a chance to check out Lil Yachty's new album called Let's Start, Let's Start Here, I'd very much recommend it, especially if you're a fan of like classic rock or funk. It has an interesting vibe. I listened to it while I was working out and the whole thing was just a vibe. It just helped me like chill, kind of be in the moment. And it was it was good. So check that out if you get a chance. Yeah, Ephraim really likes that album. He is like, <laughs> this is like his bread and butter right now. I'm like, I love that because he likes rock kind of. Uh-huh. So he oh, likes me too. We got to talk. Yeah, he likes like rock drill music. That's like his, like a cross between the two. Yeah. Not rock Anyway, drills. but. Okay, interesting. We're going to have to talk. Yeah, y'all cool. do share playlist. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's about all we got for this week. We appreciate y'all. Yeah. Thank you, Liz, so much for being on the, the podcast with us. Thank you. Cool. We'll catch y'all next week. That's the show for today. We were super excited to be able to talk with you about the wonderful topics of the Black Menace podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at The Black Menaces and subscribe to our Patreon, The Menace Society, for bonus content and footage of both the podcast and our videos. We look forward to hearing from y'all in our email. You can email us Menace Moments and other questions that you may have for us. Be sure to email blackmenacepodcast at gmail.com to get those menace moments and questions flowing into our inbox. We'll answer you on the podcast and respond to you in the email. And remember, always be a menace. Thank you, guys. <laughs>